This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl He owns the boat or does he own the boat? I think so, yeah. We're going to ask him. Yes, yes. <laughs> High maintenance, the wooden boat. <laughs> It's going up, it's going the right way. It's a big tide, so if you got stuck just now, you'd be stuck for a while. And the boat would probably lie right over, so it would not be a good... Hmm? Can it handle that? Uh, it wouldn't be good. <laughs> it probably would handle it, but it wouldn't be ideal. Is it a flat road or is it a No, it's a steep with a keel, yeah, so she would fall over. Right, uh, we'll just do a little bit of tidying up of vendors and stuff um, and get organised. And we'll also give you a safety briefing just before we get too far away. So just give us two secs while we uh, gather ourselves a bit here. Um, Rutger, it's probably a good time just to get clear what we want to achieve and what order we want to do things. Um, so we're heading round to Tregal. Um, do you want to go straight there? Do you want to sightsee a bit on the way? Do you want to, um, do you have a timetable basically? And do you have folk coming by land that are meeting us there? Or are we all going there by boat? We're, we're complete. Uh, this, is, this is the crew. Yeah. Uh, okay. And um, some people might walk back yes. to Nopolygon via Tregil yes. uh, and, and Tregil. Yeah. And uh, the others will sail with you back. Yeah. Um, I think for Vari and uh, Steve being dropped off in Finneford again, or yeah. you might cross to Iona. Yeah, might yeah you just come back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Steve to Finneford yeah. and the rest is here yeah. uh, on the pier. Yeah. Uh, and for the journey. Um, uh, I look at Eric and Sophie, what we want to do. I mean, it's beautiful yeah. to sightsee, but yeah. of course we want to also spend some good time on the beach to yes. uh, get out the plastic and have yeah. lunch. Sure. Yeah. It's probably just a bike. How are we doing, Stuart? Hello. How are we doing? We're doing fine. We're just um, going head to wind here and we're putting up the main and the mizzen sail and we're going to get head sails on and then we'll set away. How, uh, Stuart, how did you learn to, how do you know like the underground landscape because we don't see it, there's yeah, water over it? Yeah, um, just through experience, the more, more you go places the more you learn I suppose, so just through doing it. Yeah, because you just said it like extends far out. Yeah, also this rock here that you can see behind us, um, there's quite a bit of it underwater there that if we cut the corner or come in too close, you know, you maybe would touch it. So, but just know that through coming round here many times. Yes. And you suddenly can hear the sea again. Yes, that's right. Uh, and you, I think um, your whole awareness of travel is different. Um, something to do with uh, 
the lack of the noise and the way you have to work to get your progress it makes you more aware of the distance yeah and also what you said that we're dragging a little boat along to get to the coast to get on shore yeah it slows us down a little bit not a huge amount but a little bit yeah. you called her she the boat did i catch that oh they're always she <laughs> even a boat that's got a male name gets called she it's a strange custom but that's how it is, see. There used to be a steamship came round to Iona every summer and she came five or six days a week and she was called the King George V, but she was still a sheep. Yeah. And what about the sea? Is it a sheep? Well, I don't know. I mean, in, in English, of course, we don't have the masculine and feminine like there are in a lot of continental languages. Um, but on the sea, for some reason, the boats are always she. We're on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean here. If you look out there to the west, if you were to keep going out that way, you wouldn't reach any land till you came to America. So we are on the edge of the ocean, and, and that's why you get this swell here, this slight rise and fall, and um, the swell and the, the weather conditions rule our whole existence here. Yeah. Every, every day you're looking at the sea and trying to decide what you can and can't do and what it's suitable for. How do you read the sea today? Like it's very friendly today, I think. Um, yeah, it's warm winds, winds are not strong, there's not a heavy swell. Um, the one thing about today is there's quite a big tide today, so the tide is um, significant as well. Um, the main influence on our day for that will just be that it'll go very, very low on Tregal where we're heading. Um, so we just need to keep the big boat further out. Um, so we can ferry you ashore with the dinghy. Um, one thing to be aware of is that you're probably going to get your toes wet. So you can choose either to take your shoes off if you want to keep those shoes from getting wet mm -hmm. and just go in your bare feet or you can uh, if you've got boots or shoes that don't mind but the dinghy will obviously it'll hit the beach but it'll still be in a few inches of water so you are going to get get your feet wet so you can make your choice but they're very well suited to the waters here that's like quite high bow on yeah. it for its size um, and quite robustly built, so. So it's made for the for the sea. Yeah, yeah. The it big, the, 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 the it's small, but it's, it can deal with the Yes, the quite a lot waves. of motion. You can, it's surprising. It's a very safe boat, and I use it quite a lot to cross the Sound of Iona, um, even in the winter. Um, if I've got this boat on the mall side, but I live on the Iona side, so I'm commuting to work in that sometimes. Really? Uh, and so if you're coming back and it's not very nice weather, then it's good to have a dinghy that's very safe. Uh, but I guess it needs a lot of work. Um, a bit, yeah. Um, Every year? You um, take it out? It, you take her out? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in continuous use almost, so we have to choose when not to be using it to paint it. And it needs to dry a bit before you can paint it, and then you've got to scrape it and sand it and stuff. So it's a bit of work, but it's not. You know, 
it's not a huge amount of work. But you depend on it. So yes, if, if, if that's right, because you're using, relation, yeah. if you're using it enough, then it justifies the time. When we're uh, running a normal trip where we're not gathering beach materials um, like we are today, then we would just use the inflatable and we would have to do more runs, mm. but we would just anchor the boat and use the inflatable. So we wouldn't be towing this. Uh, and the inflatable, of course, we can store it on board. But it's funny that the dinghy doesn't have a real name. Yeah, well... well it's everyone, called dinghy. Everyone's dinghy is called dinghy. Uh, well, no, no, it's, it's, this one's called Chance. Chance? Okay. Seasick, I got squeezy. Queasy, squeezy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Queasy, yeah. Queasy, like on the verge of. Yes, yes. You know, the you don't feel good, but you're not actually physically sick yet. Yeah. I had the same, to be honest. Yeah. But I was so involved in talking uh -huh. that I, I kind of forgot. It's all, it also needs your attention. Yes. To be on a ship and move yes. with it. There's a lot of things going on. Yeah, and I forgot about it, and yeah. then I, yeah. I felt sick yeah the other thing that can go wrong is if um if you're focusing on something close not focusing on the sea around you or the horizon uh, for instance i mean one time that i will sometimes feel a bit queasy as well is if i have to go down and do chart work and i'm focused on that and the boat's doing lots of this then you can start to, mm, i don't feel great you know um so if you're up if you're steering the boat you're nearly always okay yeah because when you're out there you, you kind of it's very difficult to know where you're going where you're coming from mm. it's disorientating when you're out at sea and the boat is sailing and then she tacks maybe once or twice and each time she tacks your whole kind of orientation yes. changes by you know 100 you know 110 120 degrees so as people quite often ask me, I don't actually know which way we're going now, you know, and because if you're not used to it and you're not thinking through why we have to tack or when we have to tack, then... Or yeah, how you, many times we've tacked. Yes, yes, that's right. Your landmarks become kind of blurred somehow. I was talking to Vari and you both live on Iona. Mm -hmm. And for her, it's very soothing or relaxing to, to see her home from the sea. Yes. So the perspective from being on the sea and then looking at... It's different altogether, yes. Is that for you the same? Is the sea... um, yeah, it's less so now because so many years of doing it. But when I first did go on the sea round here, then it was interesting to see places that I knew from walking to. And you're looking at them from the completely opposite perspective. Instead of looking out to sea, you're looking in from the sea to the land. We're talking to different people in different parts of Europe mm -hmm. um, and what we ask them is how they live, yeah. how they make a living and then not only financially but mm -hmm. how to live and maybe even thrive. Mm -hmm. That's our question that we brought along mm -hmm. also for here, for the Ross of Mill. Mm -hmm. And so that that's actually the question I would just like to explore a bit mm -hmm. with you, Mark, and maybe also with you, Stuart. As Mark's son, like, 
how do you through the through this work mm. uh, make a living and thrive maybe it's interesting to know a bit pragmatically what the economic model of mm. it is mm. but then also just your life here mm. <laughs> mm. living on Iona being an I islander mm. going out at sea a lot mm -hmm. uh, that's I think what we're interested in to mm -hmm. just hear a little bit some of your thoughts mm -hmm. and do you want to um, do that as question and answer or, or do you want us oh. to just ramble on <laughs> or how do you want to do yeah. it rambling is fine <laughs> and if, if there's too much rambling we will just cut in yeah, yeah when we don't yes. understand we ask a yes question. yeah or let's get a bit more specific or something yeah. yeah yeah so maybe let's start with the pragmatic things like you've got Marie. Yes. You've got your whole living out there now. Yes. <laughs> she's she's my livelihood in the summer. It's a seasonal occupation in terms of the income side of it, but it's a year-round thing in terms of looking after the boat to keep it in good order and to keep it safe and to make it life long. Um, so the summer and the winter are a different balance. Uh, in the summer, I'm earning a living on the water most of the week. It varies how many days a week that is. That depends on the frequency of bad weather or how the bookings are at different times of year. Um, so some months are very, very busy and then other months are shoulder months generally, a, a bit quieter. Uh, so sometimes you're wishing you had more people on the boat and other times you're turning people away. Um, and you can have as many good bookings as you like, but if the weather's not good enough, then you can't run the trips. So it's a seasonal and weather-dependent occupation. So the weather rules our lives in the boat. But I love it. Um, it's, it's a particular kind of boat. Um, so it's a boat that has history and has a lot of tradition behind it and for me has a lot of soul if you like it has almost a spirit of its own um, which I wouldn't get with a modern um, motorboat uh, so I'm not to say that I don't admire plenty of modern motorboats I think they have their place and I've seen some boats that I think are, are amazing but this particular kind of boat, the traditional working boat, um, has a particular interest for me. Um, I can't, can't get enough of the kind of history and the lore of it. And I, I never run out of new things to find out about it and the ways of it. Um, but Mark, you didn't start out as a shipper. Or no, a I didn't. Boats person. That's right. Um, so I didn't come from a boating background. My parents weren't particularly interested in being on the sea at all. My father was a teacher and my mother was a nurse. Um, and um, I don't know whether my ancestry has more maritime connections further back, but I just was mad for boats in the sea right from an early age. And that will be partly because we used to come on holidays to this area, to, to the Hebrides, particularly to Iona. So we were living by the water's edge. We we would rent a self-catering cottage or whatever we could get basically and stay for several weeks um, every summer 
So I haven't spent a year of my life without being on Iona for at least part of the year. And if you buy the sea, then inevitably you buy boats as well. Mm. Uh, but I grew up in Glasgow, and Glasgow has a big maritime history. It has shipbuilding past, and there used to be huge amount of activity on the Clyde and the Clyde Estuary. Uh, so it's not... Um, there was plenty of references and plenty of things I could get involved with, even in the city, um, to do with boats or shipping or the history of that. Mm. Um, and do you remember the moment when you knew that this is the thing you were going to... I kind of do. I mean, uh, I didn't exactly have a kind of classic light bulb moment, but I definitely remember as a teenager, um, I went on holiday in Iona, there was a steamship used to come regularly and there were wooden launches which went out to ferry the people ashore. And so they were day trippers basically and they were coming on a trip from Oban to Iona, right round Mull quite often. And um, some of the local men on the island were employed to run these launches to bring people ashore and then to take them back out again. And very often youngsters like myself would hang about at the pier until eventually you managed to persuade one of the boatmen to, to let along. you come out. And then, of course, you would help, in inverted commas. So you would work the rope, probably the stern rope, which was less critical. Um, and um, gradually, through just being there, you would soak up a remarkably large amount of uh, understanding of the water and the boats and ropes and at least a basic understanding of some of the things that were important. And that fascinated me. And I remember thinking at the end of my school holiday when it was time to go back to Glasgow, I just don't want to go back. I, I want to be doing this. This is what I love. And it, uh, and I realised that, at that point, I realised that I really did like being on boats, doing that kind of thing. So that, I didn't forget that. Um, but a lot of people in these islands have more than one job to make up an income. Um, so when I first moved to the island, I was working, doing hotel work. Um, so a lot of people come and they'll, you know, be waiters or washing dishes or cooking or chambermaiding or whatever. Um, so I was doing a bit of all that. And then I ended up kind of majoring more on the maintenance side in the hotel, which suited me better. It was very practical and there's a never-ending list of things that break when you're running a hotel, so there was always a demand for that. So that was one of my jobs. Um, and then an opportunity came up on the island to deliver the mail. Um, so in those days, the post was delivered by bicycle, and it was a part-time job, so that was two part-time jobs. And inevitably, once I was living on the island, I started looking to get a boat. Uh, and so I bought a boat. Um, which was much smaller than the one we have now, and we used that socially. Um, and that was the beginning, I suppose, of actually hands-on having a boat and learning with your own boat, not on somebody else's. And it grew from there. So um, I, I was a bit nervous about trying to do anything commercially because I didn't want to tread on anyone else's toes. And also I didn't have the big background that some of the other um, boatmen would have had but I did have this love of the sea and I'd done a lot of sea kayaking um, around the local area and 
I felt I had enough knowledge to at least begin and we started off with our very small boat testing the waters literally um, and the boat um, had to be licensed of course and I had to go and get a certificate to say that I was competent um, so that took a little bit of organising but we started off and we could take six people in the boat at maximum and the boat was a little 19 foot boat not much bigger than a dinghy really um, and so I did that for a few summers and it seemed to be quite popular so um, I realised that it was something that we could maybe expand a little bit and I could maybe spend less time painting windows and looking out at other people's boats on the water and more time on the water myself. Mm. So that's how it kind of kicked off originally and eventually we bought the boat we have now um, because partly driven by maritime rules and regulations uh, and the restrictions that were um, in place for the kind of boat that we had at that time. So that drove us to get a bigger decked in boat which got a licence to go further afield and uh, a bigger operating area mm. um, and allowed me not to stagnate in the one kind of niche. Um, although it's probably time for the next one now, you know. <laughs> but you're always learning, you know, you're always developing. But you're not just the captain of a boat carrying people around, you're also a narrator, I would say. So if you take people out, you tell them stories about yeah. the sea and what we see and where you're going. I think that's right. I mean, for, for the trips to have enough value for money, if you like, you have to engage with the people. You can't just say, we'll take you there and that's it. I think you have to, and people want that, the people want, they've got an appetite to know a little bit more about the island or the area or the sea. Um, so you naturally find yourself answering questions. Um, and you know, yes, maybe you have to be more than just a boatman, you have to be somebody that enjoys having a bit of chat with folk. And you know, I often say to passengers, you know, I quite often learn as much from them as they learn from me, it's just different things. Uh, so I tell them about life here and and maybe stuff I know about the area or a bit of history or stories or whatever, but they're telling me about their lives in other places and um, and you make connections with people, which is great. So it's a multi-faceted job, if you like, and that's part of the charm and part of the reason you don't get bored. And the sea is quite specific because now it's a new moon. But because it's new moon, the low tide is very low and the high tide is high. Yes. So you really needed to take care of how, how to, to secure the to two boats. Yeah, so it's one of many considerations yeah, and, and judgments. Now, yeah, yeah. And now it's a very clear and beautiful day. But of course there's other days when the sea is wild mm. and dangerous. Yeah. We've been talking to people that, like fishermen, or mm. people relate to fishermen. Somebody said to me that the new generation of fishers, maybe you know about that, they are not willing to take as much risk as the generation before them. Uh -huh. And that might, for one part, come from the, the economic pressure, mm -hmm. that they're not as pressured as the generation before mm -hmm. to go out and get fish in. Mm -hmm. So how do you relate to the sea as this possible dangerous body? I think you're always aware of that. I mean, you'd be fool not to, um, because it's a big, powerful medium, and um, there are a lot of influences on it. 
And if you can understand those and pre-assess situations that might develop, then you can make the right judgments to be safe. Um, and of course, part of that just comes from doing it again and again and making mistakes and seeing what happens. Um, but part of it is trying to form an understanding with it. So you're really you're looking at the interactions between the wind and the tide and the swell and the weather. Did you ever felt that you lost control? Have well, you ever been I, there felt? are there are times when you feel on the edge of that. Yes, uh-huh. and things can go wrong. You know, things can break or malfunction. Uh, and uh, a lot about being safe on the sea is foreseeing the things that might go wrong and having contingencies in place. Uh, and the other thing is often if you can prevent one problem escalating into a series of problems. So very often, you know, when you hear a lifeboat call out and you study the case, um, then you'll find there was one problem, but actually there was another underlying problem and then there was something else unforeseen and then something else happened. And before you know it, it's snowballed into something that is beyond being sorted out by the people that's involved in it. So you're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and that's which sounds simpler than it is I guess yeah well there's a lot of things to take into account but the more you do it the more times you see patterns repeat and you start to you can anticipate yeah yes yeah, yeah and does that mean then because you mentioned uh, easy days and hard days mm. does that mean that um, life here because I can imagine there are things which are there are things which are bonus like this bay that we're sitting mm. in and then there are things which are hard like access to mainland, like a shortage of, of staff housing also. We were reading up on that or hearing stories of just local housing being so yeah. spare because a lot of it is taken up for tourism. And uh, I think a lot of island areas have challenges. Um, I mean, of course you have challenges in, in built-up areas as well, but rural areas and islands have particular challenges which uh, may be different from the challenges you might have in inner city areas um, so accommodation affordable accommodation is one for young young people or young families um, finding the right work for you that you not only can get a living but also enjoy is important but then um, that's up to the individuals often so there's there's quite a bit of opportunity for seasonal work in these areas um, but it's a little bit more um, complicated if you want to stay all the time But people find ways, imaginative ways often, so they might have two or three jobs to, to tide them over or they might have some kind of craft that they do in the winter that they can then sell in the summer um, or they might have um, a different kind of work regime in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the winter. So, so how does that economy look for you now, Stuart? Um, Coming back well, from London now, back in Iona? Yeah. Uh, I never made much money in London because it's an expensive place to live, but, um, you know, get by fine. Uh, I'm always busy with work, whether it's, you know, out in the boat or I do a lot of some building work and odd jobs and stuff, but I never seem to be short of work, so I don't have to worry about that so far. <laughs> um, in terms of... And your partner, for instance? Yeah, she works um, uh, for one of the local craft shops. So she has pretty much year-round employment as well, less in the winter, but enough. So we're relatively secure, I would say. Um, 
but you know we have to be willing to work fairly hard for that and um, and be flexible and yeah, be and be yeah. very uh, versatile. Yes. Yes. I yes. So. Like you were a mailman yeah. and a shipper and a maintenance guy. Yeah. And pe people are versatile, um, and I think they often discover they can do things um, that maybe they they hadn't thought of doing, um, but it but it can work. Uh, I mean, Stuart's effectively created his own little niche business there by by mopping up building work that the bigger builders didn't want and there'll always be a demand for that you know there's always people doing renovations and there's repairs and improvements um, so I think there'll always be a demand for that kind of work or making crafts selling them then there's obviously people who are crafting crafting by its definition is more or less farming but on a small scale with other work so it's very common for people to have an involvement with agriculture or, or animals um, and running a croft, but also have something else perhaps connected with tourism, very often connected with tourism. Are there also people that work unsite specific? I don't know how the internet connection on Iona is. I see what you mean, like yeah. Working. Yeah, like I think novelists there or is, journalists yes. or people who, yeah. can, well, who can work without. Yeah, yeah, there's two graphic designers on the island who will do some of their work down the wire. And there has been people in the past doing all sorts of work. I mean, there was one person working um, for Westminster at one stage down the wire. And um, there's definitely opportunities and probably growing opportunities to do that every evening when I get home. I'm sitting in front of the computer dealing with email inquiries and that's where the bulk of our bookings come. Unfortunately, or depending how you want to look at it, um, in terms of work, unfortunately, because our trips are fairly bespoke and they're all different, there's a lot of that kind of work to be done. So for every trip, you might have quite a few emails to, to clinch that. Um, so that's Whereas a phone call, you would maybe resolve. Yes. Well, phone call um, often clarifies things quickly because you've got two-way dialogue. But I'm also thinking of automated booking systems, which a lot of standard um, tours will use. So if you're running a bus tour or if you're running trips to staff nowadays, um, you can have an online booking system. And so that somebody doesn't need to sit and tend on that all the time. Um, they might be on and off the phone quite a bit, you know, adjusting things. But generally, it's um, it's not such a big part of the, the workload. And are you also linked to bigger booking systems? Like well, I'm not. Scale, like no, some of them might be. I mean, a lot of accommodation providers are. Um, I haven't found an umbrella booking system that would suit us um, and I find it hard to imagine how that would work unless we changed our trips to make them the same every day or every week such that they were predictable enough that people could just look on us a couple of pages and say well that's what I'm signing up for um, I'll, I'll look on the calendar and see if they've got availability. It just doesn't work like that. Your us. calendar moves around. Yeah, our calendar moves and, and, and the weather moves and um, the whole combination of, you know, if you're running a trip which is made up of lots of individuals, then there's a lot more um, toing and froing to get it set up. If it's a group booking, then that's slightly more straightforward. Mm. That's, that's the kind of slightly less attractive side, the less sexy side of running the trips, but mm. you can't do one without the other. Yeah. Can I ask a last, last question? And then I think we should be off for food because I, I've lost sight of the group even. Mm. <laughs> Everyone here, so you run crafts, you run trips. 
I've heard that we're running a lot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose you. A lot of people are self-employed. I suppose what it boils down to. So you're running a business. Um, you know, I didn't set out to be a businessman or run a business, but if I wanted to run boat trips, then that's how it has to be. That's how it works. Mm. And there's like dynamism involved, maybe, yes, which yes, is yes. why you say you're running it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's it's. We're also running a business. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just like an engine running. You know, it's, it's not that different. Oh, yeah. we're running it. Yeah. We're running it. Yeah, yeah. An engine can be running at low revs. You know. You're responsible ultimately for everything. I suppose it's, you're running. You're running the show, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Editing, whatever. You're also. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you both. Yeah. So wonderful. <laughs> we thought we'd come up with a small challenge for you. Yeah, yeah. Since you're a creative shipper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll be leaving some in the dinghy and towing the dinghy behind with rubbish in it. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you think you can get this on board? Maybe. <laughs> Do you find anything exciting? Mm. Just, just rubbish and plastic. I always wonder what you're going to find, you know, oh. there'll be something exciting. Oh, a little newt or lizard or thing, yeah, isn't it? Sausage net. Yes. Is that like that already, or...? No, I no, think... You guys do that. The yeah. net was here, but we put the things yeah. in and it's we, good, we knotted it We knotted together. it, but I think we need to put a rope around it to oh. make sure it, do, like, if you... That it doesn't fall apart. Yeah, yeah. fall back in the sea again. Yeah, then we don't <laughs> really know one day. Oh, that will that will be the worst case. Yes, put it back in the water. Back in the sea. <laughs> that would be a shame, wouldn't it? Yeah. So this was a bigger rope like this, and then started the becoming smaller. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why and then it's it gets harder. complex. Yeah. yeah. Then that's problems right. get really. That's what they call wicked problems. <laughs> <laughs> when one big problem mm -hmm, becomes tons mm -hmm, of mm -hmm, small problems mm -hmm. interconnected. Mm -hmm. Very heavy when you flip it though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. You sort of double the weight for the meter. For the meter, yeah. Um, I think we better keep it long and they flip it on the, on the boat. Yeah, just. Denk ik hoor, want ik denk dat we het anders gewoon niet opkrijgen. What about all the other textile on the boat, like the rope? So these um, originally all this kind of stuff would have been hemp. This is a modern equivalent. So it's actually a polyester. Um, but they make it so that it looks like him, and it's it's actually a little easier to handle because it doesn't stretch and contract with moisture content. Which hemp would do? Do you grease it? No, not this. We we do grease the wire yeah. with um, lanolin from oh, sheep. From sheep. Yeah. So we put that on there, and it, we do that once a year, and it stops the rusting happening so quickly. And um, we use quite a few. Um, natural things on the boat so on the mast on the wood a lot of the wood is oiled rather than varnished and um, we just use either uh, linseed or corn oil uh, and mix it with um, turpentine proper turpentine from trees not, not petroleum based and that soaks into the wood it's from wood and then it goes back into wood and it preserves the wood a bit you just have to do it more often right when you oil yes yes but with these ropes rubbing on the wood and um, it's often a better finish because 
varnish gets rubbed off. So we use varnish here, yeah. but on here this gets a lot of wear, yeah. so it's oiled. Yeah. Um, doesn't look like it's had oil, but it was oiled in the spring, um, and it probably needs it again in the autumn. Yeah. Yeah. And the decks the same. They look bare, but they do get oiled as well. But we try and keep the decks wet with salt water. Oh, always wet. As, as much as we can, because um, otherwise the wood shrinks in the sunshine and then you get leaks. And then that is what can shorten the life of a boat, a wooden boat, very quickly. Because if you get fresh water going down below and then there's not enough air moving around, it'll rot. Uh, so we try and if you use salt, salt water, the salt helps pickle the wood. Oh, it's yeah. like a, it's like a fermentation. Like a pro, it's like <laughs> a, pre yeah. well, yeah, it's like a preservative, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, you know but how that you. That means would... you throw a bucket of seawater regularly, or how? Yes, do you yes. Keep yeah. Well, we use buckets of water, or we have a, a deck wash hose, so we hose it's the. Salt. Yeah, it's just taking seawater. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we just hose the decks for seawater. Wow. Interesting. You have to keep the boat wet. So, it's, so, that it's so it stays watertight. So it stays watertight. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's a funny thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, there are other approaches. You can seal the wood completely and then it doesn't move as much. But that's harder to do with soft woods. Yeah. And this boat doesn't have the budget to use hardwood. So yeah. these are Douglas fir, these uh, decks, which um, a more expensive Douglas fir would probably be fat, uh, slower growing. So you'd have tighter growth rings. So this is not particularly slow uh, growing. So they travelled across the ocean, Douglas fir, or, or is it from... Uh, this was from um, the north of England, this this wood. Um, yeah, the, the, the sort of really premium deck material would be either teak, which of course is not so sustainable, or um, maybe Canadian pine, um, but you've then got the transport and it's very expensive. Working boats, you know, you have to have a kind of top end to the budget. Um, she has to earn a living, this boat. So you can't be too fussy about using really expensive materials unless you've got very deep pockets. Um, and the boat doesn't earn that kind of money. Um, Why do you get it out of the water? Um, well, we use it, usually keep her in the water as much as we can. Yeah. But every second year we'll get the boat hauled at a boatyard. Um, we take her to take out locally. Yeah, we can't we can't do it on Iona, no. and we can't. Yeah. There's nowhere really on Mull that we can do it either. So we have to take it to the mainland to be hauled. So that happens every second year, and in between, we'll put the boat on the beach um, at high tide and let the tide go out, um, leaning the boat against a pier or something, and um, then you can scrub her and give her a quick paint. Yeah. But it's so it's not quite as good. Yeah. yeah. Expensive business though, I should think, is it? Yeah, it is. yeah. Um if you get the boat lifted on the mainland it's expensive, yeah. yeah. Uh, we have a good working relationship with a boatyard on one of the other islands which is connected by bridge to the mainland. Um and they've been always really helpful and uh, they're very good at problem solving and um, uh, they'll help you out when when you've got um, repairs to do or whatever. Yeah. I'm just going to check on yeah. where we are position-wise, whether we're going to go back. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of the Travelling Academy, 
an initiative of het Nieuwe Instituut in close partnership with the Consulate General in Istanbul and embassies in Germany, Morocco, Spain and the UK. The Travelling Academy brings together makers from these regions and the Netherlands to learn how formal and informal ways of knowing can support each other in tackling ecological, sociopolitical and spatial issues.